We are restarting, or we're, we're carrying on actually with a series that we started before the summer holidays. It seemed quite appropriate that we kind of went into the holiday time halfway through a series called Work, and then at the end of the holiday time, we're back into a series uh, about work. And um, you might think, you might be sat here thinking, what, what's, what's work got to do with church? Uh, I want to just float a couple of ideas with you. Uh, before we start. Firstly, you might think, I, I've done with work actually. Um, I, I don't work anymore. Um, I'm, I remember that. It was somewhere in the, in the distant past or more recent past. And actually, I enjoy just retirement now. I don't work. There was a fascinating uh, podcast that I listened to this past week which was looking at the impact of life on, on individuals uh, as they were struggling with what we currently in our first world called work-life balance. Um, one of the points that was made was this. Our brains find it very, very difficult. Actually, our brains find it impossible, the reporter said, to differentiate between the demands of living and the demands of work, which is one of our challenges. So, so we leave work and we're very often we're carrying on attached to work, maybe with emails and messages and all of that kind of thing. Uh, and then we end up with all of the other demands of living, the things that we've got to do. That's work. Because of the world that we tend to live in now, where we, we think of work only as that bit that we do for somebody else. We ignore the idea that work is all of those demands that are placed on us to live in this world fruitfully. So that's the first thing that I just want to throw out there. If you think that you can get away with not listening to this series because you don't work anymore, work is still part of your life. The second is this. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are going to spend, most likely, a significant amount of your life engaged in work. It's what you are going to do. That the proportionally speaking, most people are involved in work which doesn't look much like what you might call Christian ministry, what people who work full-time in the church do. Does that mean that all of that time is wasted? Absolutely not. In fact, it is the most potentially productive time for the great news of the message of Jesus. And we're going to look at how the Bible encourages us to think about that when it comes to work. That's one side of it. You might, on the other hand, you might be just observing this idea of the Christian faith. You might maybe have been coming along frequently, regularly, and you're thinking, there's something here. What we want to present is a radically different way of thinking about life, which is shaped not by those things that we construct as human beings, but shaped by the pattern for this world that is laid out by our Creator. 
And so the idea of seriously looking at a Christian alternative to the structure of work is incredibly important. I think one of the things that we fail to do very often is recognize that the message of the Bible is not about all this holy stuff that we do for a small part of the week, but actually the message of the Bible is engaging us in every aspect of our lives. Everything is reshaped because we believe in Jesus. And so if you're observing, if you're considering, if you're thinking, the message of the Bible has a profound perspective for you to consider with regard to work. So, what, where have we been up to now? Well, just before the holidays, we did a little bit of a, 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 a quick perspective. And what we saw was, on the one hand, right at the beginning, work is a good thing. It's laid out for us by God. But then we recognized that work is bad. Work is hard. Work is toiling. Work is painful. Work is difficult. And the reason for that is because we rebelled as humanity against God. And so the, the great kind of the fulfilling purpose of humanity to flourish in this world, to build a world which is successful and and caring and supportive to every member of humanity and fulfilling in the things we do has been subverted because we've taken our eye away of the purpose of living in this world and we've turned it in on ourselves and we make ourselves the center of everything which is actually what happened in Genesis chapter 3 which is described as the fall we turn away from God being at the center of our existence and we place ourselves at the center and as soon as we place ourselves at the center particularly in the work context we see crisis and we see difficulty so it's critically important that we understand that the Bible has something to say because work is difficult and because work is hard What I want us to do today, really, is to start to get into some of those questions of, well, okay, that's fine, but how do we actually think about tomorrow morning when I get up and when I go into work? How sh what should my attitude be when I go into work? That, that's really key, isn't it? We can talk about all of the kind of structural reasons of why works at work is like it is and why it's not as successful and, and satisfying as it is. But how should I actually think about work when I wake up tomorrow morning? When I, when I walk through the office doors or the factory doors or the shop doors or wherever we go to work, how should, what should my attitude be? Well, we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter um, 29. Because what we're actually going to look at from this passage is what happens, what does work do, and how should we therefore, what should our attitude be when work isn't in the right place? Let them, you'll see, you'll see as it comes, you'll see how it works out. First thing that I want to look at in Jeremiah chapter 29 is what does it look like when society is ripped apart. 
Let's have a look at our reading. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. There's the opening bit. Let's work out where we are. Let's orientate ourselves in the Bible. You remember right at the beginning of this work series and at the beginning of the Bible, we have this dramatic crisis. The world is now a mess. How is God going to engage with humanity to rebuild a vision of Him and an understanding of who we are to be? The way that He does that is He engages with a tiny group of people. It starts off with one man, Abraham. And he promises Abraham, he says this, I will build from you a nation. And that the purpose of that nation is to become a, a presence and a witness to me in the world. They're going to describe what I am like. That's their job. That's what they are to do. And we have this tremendous journey through the Old Testament of God working with this messed up, rebellious people who don't truly believe the way they ought to and yet he continues to persevere with them faithfully and they rise up from their mess and they, they progress and then they fall away again and little by little God is taking them on a journey and finally with King David they establish themselves in this place which is to be the witness of God, Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes, for all of the nations, this point where God is saying, these are my people. They're living under my law. They are building my society. And it's a society which should look appealing because the laws that they bring about are shaped by me. What, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that the, the, the people of God are always twisting a little bit the common practice of humanity with regards to the laws that are being introduced. It's always a little bit better because God is bringing a little bit better into the world. And Jerusalem finally arrives. And then, at the point where everything seems to be headed for just perfection, really, God's people rebel yet again. They turn away. And what happens as a result of their rebellion is they end up in exile. Now, at that point in the ancient world, the ancient world is in chaos. Previous powers are declining, other powers are rising up. Egypt, which has been tremendously important, is declining. And now Babylon strikes in and becomes the great megapower. What do we see happens to Jerusalem? People are taken from Jerusalem and they are taken into exile. But look at who is taken. The elders who are in exile, the priests, the prophets, the king, the queen mother, 
And then look what happens. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, the artisans, they all end up being taken out of Jerusalem and taken into exile in Babylon. I want you to imagine what would happen to our society if the ruling elite, if the judicial system, if those who are providing employment, if the financiers, if the skilled workers, if all of the capable people were ripped out of our society and taken away. Now, we can't even begin to conceive of that because we live in such a, a kind of global world, don't we? But just imagine on a smaller scale if everything is ripped away, all of the kind of structures, everything which has made Jerusalem, this presence of God's people, this place which is working to establish the presence of God is stripped out. Jerusalem and Judah ends up as a wasteland, as a mess. Jerusalem's walls are broken down. Have you you've seen some of the pictures, I'm sure, of, of Syria? The dev sheer devastation in Syria. Shattered communities. The kind of communities which when you look at what has been destroyed, you kind of get an idea of what it must have been like before. This was not a poor economy. This was a rich economy, Syria. This was a thriving economy with large hotels and beautiful buildings and well-manicured streets and now it is a devastated mess. And what has been ripped out of it is all of the social structure. That's what happens to Jerusalem. That's what happens to God's people. Those who are supposed to be representative of God. What are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be building a society by working to show the presence of God. This great hope of God in the world through His people is shattered. If you and I had been in Jerusalem in those previous years, and we look around at Jerusalem as it is now, devastated, we would think, where's God? Where's God? Where's that great hope? Where's the possibility that we were looking to? The world, the society in which we had, which we had built is gone. It is broken. It is devastated. Society has been ripped apart. How are societies formed? How is society formed? It is formed by working for it. Societies do not exist well unless people together are working for society's well-being. Now even more so when you've got a society which is there to point towards the great God who created us and then that's ripped apart, then society really has, from the point of view of God's people, fallen apart. So we ask the question, 
these people who've been taken away from Jerusalem, how should they live as exiles? That's a question that we want to ask. And that question is answered by the prophet Jeremiah, who writes this letter to them, and he tells them how to live as exiles. Before we come to that, I want to read you a few verses from 1 Peter, because 1 Peter describes to us how we also, as believers in Jesus, live, in a sense, as exiles. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Get that? He's saying you, believers, where you are living, even though you are not an exile, I'm saying you are a foreigner and exile. I encourage you to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits you. You see that? We're looking in the Old Testament at God's people in exile, and then Peter says, oh, by the way, don't forget that you are exiles as well. So your attitude as believers in Jesus should be the same as the exiles that were in Babylon. So understanding what was going on with the exiles in Babylon is precisely how we should live. Why? Why is that? Because we are exiles. Because the kingdom that we are hoping for and looking to is not established. Now, it's not as it should be. We are exiles, just like the people who had been taken to Babylon. And so let's go back now and let's have a look at what uh, the prophet says to the people who've been taken. Verse 4 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That that is the most surprising letter that the exiles receive, I think. What would you expect Jeremiah to write to those who've been taken into exile? You would expect him to write, spend all of your time subverting where you are. Make it difficult for them. Don't believe that you're to stay there. Behave like almost urban guerrilla warfare, an attitude which makes you difficult and hard to have around because if you do that, you're going to be released 
and you'll end up being able to come back here. Make it hard. Make it awkward. And Jeremiah actually writes completely the opposite. Isn't that astounding when you think about it? Exiles who've been taken live for the flourishing of the place that you are in exile. Now, there is a sense in which I think if we join the dots, we could almost stop now. We could say our task as exiles is to live for the flourishing of the place where we are exiled. That's it. That's it. That's what we've got to do. We live for the flourishing of the place where we are exiles. We don't live like that, do we? I don't live like that well. I don't always think about my work life in the light of creating a flourishing society. I don't think like that very well, do you? But how transformative would it be how much would it bear witness to the God who we love if we lived totally committed to the idea that everything I do is about the flourishing of the society in which I live? Look at what he says. first thing that he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat the produce. You cannot eat the produce of a garden that you've planted unless you hang around and wait for the fruit to come. It doesn't come quickly, does it? You've got to wait. You've got to say, I'm going to plant now and I'm going to reap in eight months' time or however long it is and I'm going to go through that cycle again and again and again and I am going to treat this place as home. I am going to embed myself. I am going to live in this society. Now, what we're actually seeing here, that's work. That's what they're doing. That is work that they are doing. Committed to working, building houses, planting, eating. We, we think about work, don't we, as something that we go and do. The Bible doesn't think like that because that's not what society was like. Everybody worked pretty much all the time because you pretty much had to. You had to be committed to sowing and reaping and building houses. And, and it was the society which was developing and flourishing. But what he's saying is this. And this takes us all the way through to us today. Do we live as though in one sense this is home? Because that's what the prophet says that God's people in exile should live like. Like this, we are an embedded part of society. Secondly, we see, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters and, and, and marry, get them married and have children. What, what is this? It's human flourishing. Which, which you know, in a world which we are so used to where we have a a welfare state and we have a structure, a societal structure that will support us, we don't see the reliance on the birth of children as being the generation to support us as we age. What the prophet is saying is, live expecting to age in this place. 
so that you will be supported by the next generation. Don't live with an attitude that says, I'll never want my kids to grow up in this place, so I won't have any children. We'll die off. <laughs> the prophet's saying, no, live as though you are to be supported into your next generation by those who you give birth to. Thirdly, and this is the most dramatic, I think this is just so revolutionary. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Society is absolutely about building good prosperity. It is about building good prosperity. We cannot have a good society without industrious people building, seeking good. But what the prophet is saying is embed yourself in that activity as well. What an attitude. To, do we get up tomorrow and do we say, part of what I am doing is building a better society? I don't know what all of your jobs are. But everything, everything that we do is contributing to a society which should be better. And you say, but it isn't. <laughs> because actually I work for a corporation that works as hard as it possibly can to pay as little tax as it possibly can to contribute to the society that we live in. I, and I would say, I get that. I understand that. I see that. We live in a corrupt world. But don't you worry about that side of the equation. You just live. We just live seeking the prosperity of the city in which we live. Because if that prospers, you will prosper too. It will be well with you, God says. You should have an attitude which is seeking good in that way. We're going, to cover in, we're going to cover in a couple of weeks the real challenges of living in a society which is compromised. So don't, don't worry about the compromise. We'll come to that. But right now the attitude is being committed to the well-being. This, this is how the church grew. By around about A.D. 200, one of the early church fathers, one of, the, one of the first leaders in the church, a man called Tertullian, he was able to say this about the society that he lived in and the impact of Christians. He was able to say this, we are but of yesterday. What's he saying? This, this group of Christians in the world, the Roman world, the empire, this hasn't been around for long. We're new. We're new on the scene. We are but of yesterday. And yet we have filled all the places that belong to you. Cities, islands, forts, towns, exchanges, the military camps themselves, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the marketplace. We have left you nothing, Tertullian said, but your 
temples. I think Tertullian was, was reflecting on what Peter had said when he said, I want you to abstain from sinful desires, but I want you to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, your good deeds will glorify God. Tertullian was able to say, this group of Christians who've only just appeared on the scene are so concerned about society that they are not running away from it, they are playing their part in it. At the highest and lowest levels of society, in the Senate, in the marketplace, in the town councils, what is the Christian attitude to work what Peter says lived out the way Tertullian says it. We were so concerned about the well-being of the empire that we played our part in the Senate. Can you, can you believe what, what Tertullian was able to say? It's incredible, isn't it? Yes, it resulted in dramatic persecution. That, that's, that's another side of it. But what he did say is we cared about the world that we live in. We didn't create this separate society, which is this huddle away. Let's batten down the hatches till Jesus comes. We got stuck in and we lived in this world with a different agenda. I think that is revolutionary in terms of the hope of the gospel where Peter says, live lives which are paradoxical. You might not like what you believe, but they love what you do. I think one of the problems for Christians, and I'll say it if you're looking on at the Christian church, I'll say it on behalf of the church. We've done a real good job at holding to things that are very uncomfortable for some, and at the same time being objectionable in our behavior towards the world in which we live. And that's not what we are called to do. We are called to be committed for the good and the well-being of the society. Why? Why should we? Because exile is not all there is. That's why. Why does Jeremiah say to the exiles, live like this? He says, because when 70 years are completed for Babylon, this is in verse 10, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Just imagine what that would be like. Just imagine if you are an 80-year-old in exile in Babylon and the message is in 70 years' time, I'll bring you back. And you know you'll never see that day. But aren't you filled with joy? Because your children and your children's children will see that day. You're living for a greater hope than just your own thoughts. Just your own experience. Seventy years and I'll bring you back. 
And the, here, Jude mentioned it in the beginning. I'm glad she did. These, these verses are so powerful, so encouraging, so filled with hope, because this is what God says to His people in exile. And effectively, if we are living in exile now, God says it to us as well. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I carried you into exile. Here's the thing. If, if those words are simply for the temporary recovery of people to Jerusalem just before Jesus was born, it is not big enough. <laughs> it's not big enough. It doesn't apply to me and you, if that's all it is. But it is bigger than them. And the reason it's bigger than them is this. Because at the, the end of the Bible in Revelation and chapter 18 through to 20, we see Babylon again. Babylon re-emerges in the language of Revelation. The Babylon is the place of exile, the place of being dispersed, the place of, of pressure, and the place of compromise, and the, the place of persecution. Babylon re-emerges. Babylon doesn't re-emerge in historical terms. It doesn't. Babylon becomes this picture for us which says what happened to them back then is happening to you. So what Peter says is you're exiles, you're just like these people. The, the Babylon that we live in today is not going to stay. It's going to end. After this, Revelation chapter 18 verse 1 and 2 says this, after this, another angel coming down from heaven he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We live, if we are believers in Jesus, in exile. And we live in exile with a hope. And the hope is this that we seek the well-being of the place that we are in exile, just like we see laid out in Jeremiah chapter 29. We seek that good. Why? Because we know that the exile will end. Seventy years, the prophet told the people. And for some of them, they knew that they would never see that day, but they lived with a hope. And since when Jesus died and rose again and returned to heaven, we have been anticipating again the fall of Babylon. 
And there have been countless people who have anticipated that, but they have continued to live in hope. And here's for you and me. Do we, because of Jesus, continue to live with that hope? That is the power, that was the purpose, that is the the motivation, that is the strength by which we can get up tomorrow and we'll say, I live for the prosperity of the place that I live now because it won't always be like this. Because one day, the King will return. Live for the peace and prosperity of the city in which you live to the glory of of the king of that city who is not yet seen. Nice Jesus.